0: I wanted to let you know that, uh, that I'm not Mark Kring. <laughs> Most of you figured that out already, but if you're new here, Mark Kring's the senior pastor here. I'm his associate, and uh, Mark and Laurel Lee are on a little vacation this week. They married off their son, Derek, on Friday evening to Kristen Ganay, who many of you know, and uh, it was a wonderful wedding. It was outdoors, out uh, toward uh, DeWitt, de- 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 I guess. Grand River in 96, that area, Rosewood Inn. It was a wonderful, wonderful time, but they're taking a little time off. I want to let you know, too, about uh, Bob Imes. A number of you have been praying for Bob, and uh, you may have known that Bob went into the hospital, went into Ingham Med on Thursday with what looked like a stroke. And um, over time, in a series of tests, it went from a stroke to a a brain bleed at the base of his skull to a a mass of some kind, they thought. and then uh, most recently, uh, um, actually, I went up to see him on, on uh, Friday, on Thursday night. I went up to see him, and it was late. Uh, he was already sleeping, and the, the room was dark, and, you know, it had been a tough day. So uh, I just sat in a chair in his room and, and started praying for him. And, and um, a nurse came in and woke him up, and, and uh, he, he was kind of startled to see me. I said, Bob, I'm, I'm used to it. You sleep through my sermons all the time. <laughs> He's got a pretty good sense of humor. We, we jab each other all the time. So, um, But uh, in, the, in the meantime, he was transferred over to Sparrow and, and then uh, had a series of tests, and, and it appears that uh, whatever, whatever it was uh, has ceased to become a, a serious health issue. And so thanks. Well, I asked Bob, uh, I talked to him last night after the service, and I asked him, is, is there anything we can do for you? And he said, yeah, tell him to praise God. Praise God that uh, he, he's better. It looks like he's going to be coming home today. Another uh, one of our sisters in Christ here, Melissa Carr, uh, whom some of you know, uh, Kevin and Melissa Carr, and their two young daughters attend here, and uh, Melissa's going to surgery for breast cancer tomorrow, and uh, she said, I talked to her just before the first service, she said it's going to be a six to nine hour surgery, it looks like, and uh, sounds like quite an ordeal, so... Uh, she's trusting God for whatever he has for her, and I'd like to pray for her and, uh, and Bob right now uh, as, a, as a group, and I pray that you'd carry that forward tomorrow as well as Melissa's in surgery. Father, we thank you for the fact that uh, you not only care for us when we pray, but you care for us every moment of every day. And, and Lord, I, I just... Uh, Thank you and praise you for what you've done in, in Bob's life. You are the great physician. You intervened in his situation, which looked plenty grim at one point. And uh, now it looks like he's coming home today. We thank you and praise you for, for uh, intervening and bringing him healing and restoring him to health. And, and uh, tomorrow for Melissa, Lord, we, we pray that you'd strengthen and encourage her. Um, as King Jehoshaphat said in Second Chronicles 20, Lord, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. And, Lord, I pray that her eyes would be on you and that her trust would be in you tomorrow. I pray that you'd intervene supernaturally there, that you'd guide the physicians involved and um, bring them wisdom and understanding that they need. At the same time, that you'd intervene supernaturally in that situation and eradicate that cancer from her body and that you'd bring her uh, complete healing and restore her to health once again. I pray that you'd give her uh, that peace that passes all understanding uh, that that goes beyond anything that we can muster up as human beings you told us in in corinthians or excuse me you told us in uh, romans 15:13 that you are the god of hope and that you minister your joy and peace to us by your holy spirit as we trust in you and i and i pray that um melissa's trust and kevin's trust and and that of their girls would be in you tomorrow as well and and that you would deliver for them lord and and that uh, the faith of God's people, too. We know that you move in response to the prayers of your people. And we pray that as we lift her up in prayer, that you'll intervene there and bring her healing and restore her to her family healthy once again. And and we thank you for all that you do in our lives in that way, Lord. And, and uh, we thank you and praise you. And uh, we ask these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I could relate to what Michael said uh, because I got busted in... Uh, church when I was a kid for whistling in church by the Sunday school superintendent and then when I was a little bit older I rode a motorcycle on Sunday and didn't wear a tie at the right time so I almost got myself arrested seems like uh, seems like David was criticized for his lack of dignity too and in, uh, in dancing down the street uh, one time so King, King David that is I want to talk with you today about the penetrating power of, uh, of God's Word and how it plays itself out in our lives. I want to share with you, as an example, a, a, a story about a Filipino man named Nard Pagyao. He writes that in March of 1956, when he was about six, a, a tall, pale, white man stumbled into my home village of Dibigat in the northern jungles of the Philippine island of Luzon. The man didn't speak our language, so the elders tried as best they could to ask, why are you here? He said, I've come to learn your language. I'd like to write it down and give you God's word in your language. Who is your God? The elders asked. He's the God of heaven and earth. The man answered, He's the creator of the universe. He created you too. Is he powerful, the elders probed, more powerful than the spirits that have controlled our lives since the beginning? Is he more powerful than our ancestors, the the headhunters? Yes, he's more powerful, the man said. Hopeful, we started teaching this man, whose name was Dick Rowe, our language. Maybe his God could free us from these spirits. Then, when I was about 13, Dick had to return to the United States to raise support for his ministry. But before he went back, he translated the Gospel of Mark. And he gave me a copy. While he was gone, I started reading the Bible for the first time, beginning with the story of Jesus in Mark and continuing through chapter 16. Sitting on top of a rock, I read the Gospel in my heart language. It felt like I was actually seeing the characters. But the further I read, the more distressed I became. A a mob of people came to get Jesus out of the Garden of Gethsemane. What What did he do wrong? I read as fast as I could. They accused him of all kinds of false things. They mocked him, spat on him, beat him, and took him before Pilate. Then the scourge and the crown of thorns. It was excruciating to read that they forced him to carry a wooden cross, and then they nailed him to it. Deep in my heart, a hatred of God swelled, I shook my fist and shouted, I hate you, God, for being so powerless. Why should I believe in a powerless God like you? With all my strength, I threw the gospel of Mark down on the rocks and started walking home. I couldn't understand why God wouldn't protect his own son. Our headhunters defended us to the death. Because of them, no one could touch us. I wanted a God like that, someone who would protect me from the spirits that demanded that we sacrifice our cows chickens, pigs, and dogs. This God didn't even save his own son. Suddenly, as I was walking, God reached down into my heart. Nard, don't you understand, I heard him say. That's how much I love you. I gave you my son on your behalf. For the first time, I understood grace. I understood how much God loved me. God, if you love me that much, I prayed, I want to give you my life, my heart. It's all yours. I went back and picked up my gospel, brushed it off, and sat back on that rock to see what happened next. It was an incredible moment as I read that Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. Nobody in all of Digabot, nobody from among the Isnag people had ever risen from the grave. The resurrection story changed my life. Amen. Amen. God's word has the power to save and it has the power to penetrate hearts. I was sharing that, uh, a little bit about that story at uh, the, the men's Bible study group, the little informal group that gets together at Fernando's on Wednesday morning and, and Steve uh, Whalen said to me, you know, that's how it happened to me. He said in 1982, somebody was, somebody was uh, reading me the Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 for by grace are you saved uh, through faith and that out of yourselves it's a gift of God not that anyone should boast and uh, he said those words just penetrated my heart and I, and I uh, became a child of God at that moment that, that's how God's word works in our lives and that's what Paul told us in Romans 1, 16 and 17 he said for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is available to us by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The Holy Spirit generates faith uh, to believe as we hear the word of God and as we respond to it. Jesus said no one can come to the Father unless the Holy Spirit draws him. And and he uses the word of God to do that in our lives. God's word is so much more than another book. It penetrates hearts. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that in uh, in Hebrews four twelve and thirteen he says, "For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow." able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So the word of God penetrates our lives, not only at the point of salvation, but as we get into the word of God on a day-to-day basis. It it penetrates our hearts. It cuts away at the false motivations, the false intent, at, at the sin at the thoughts that aren't godly thoughts. It strips away everything that is of the old man, the old person, and, and it clears the way for God to reveal His Son, Jesus Christ, through us. And, and that's the power of the Word of God in our lives. And that's the way it acts as, as a, a piercing agent, sharper than any two-edged sword in our lives. Well, what... Uh, what does the Bible have to say about itself? How can we trust the word of God? Well, um, it says, first of all, that the Bible's not man-made. The Bible uh, testifies about itself. It says that in, uh, in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, that uh, Peter says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. In other words, we didn't just make this stuff up. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. And the reason that, that God provided us with his word, one reason, is, is not just to save us, but to equip us to be used as his instruments. He tells us in, again in Second uh, Timothy 3.16 that all scripture is breathed out by God. The Greek there, the, the uh, the translation in the Bibles in front of you in the pew says inspired by God. Uh, but the literal Greek is breathed out by God. God breathed into, into uh, about 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. He breathed into them his intent for the word of God. And they wrote it down. And, and that's how we have the word of God. All scripture is breathed out by God. And this is what we can do with it in our lives. It's profitable for teaching, For reproof, in other words, for bringing somebody up short when they're headed in the wrong direction. For correction, for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be competent. Some other translations are are adequate or complete. That the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the purpose of that, once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, the purpose of the word of God in our lives is for God to equip us and sharpen us as his instruments so that we can be used to accomplish his eternal purposes. You've perhaps heard that C.S. Lewis said about Jesus Christ that uh, Jesus claimed that he was the son of God. And he said that that narrows our options. You know, you've heard uh, people say that Jesus is, is just a great teacher. Well, he can't be just a great teacher because he claimed he was a son of God. So Lewis said, either he is in fact the son of God or he's a liar or he's a lunatic, one or the other. But he has to be one of those three. He can't be just a great Bible teacher. In the same way, the, uh, the Bible claims to be the divinely inspired word of God, the, the, the God-breathed word of God for us. And, and so it can't be just a great work of literature. Uh, we don't have that option. It is either what it says it is—the Word of God, the inspired Word of God—or it is a pack of lies. Uh, one or one or the other. You know, there are some external uh, evidences in favor of the authenticity of Scripture as well. It's not just internal evidences. Certainly, there are hundreds of fulfilled prophecies, and and there are uh, external evidences from other historical accounts that confirm what is reported in Scripture. Um, But even even more than that, when those scholars who study the authenticity and the reliability of texts, not just biblical texts, but secular works of literature as well, when they study scripture, uh, they will tell you that it is the most authenticated and the most reliable work of literature in human history. It it has been verified more. And in fact, um, it is several hundred times Uh, the way that they judge reliability is on the number of manuscripts available and the the length of time, the duration of time between the time the original was written and the time those copies of those manuscripts were made. And on the basis of those criteria, the the Bible is several hundred times more reliable and uh, able to be authenticated than are the great works of history like like the Iliad and the Odyssey by, by Homer, for example. That have been well accepted for centuries. It's it's much more reliable and authenticatable than uh, that work is. Maybe some of you have the Iliad on your nightstand right now for a little light reading, in the, in the evening. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this about uh, about the Word of God. He was a Lutheran pastor who was martyred by the Nazis in 1945. He says, Because I am a Christian, therefore every day in which I do not penetrate more deeply into the knowledge of God's word in Holy Scripture is a lost day for me. I can only move forward with certainty upon the firm ground of the word of God. And as a Christian, I learn to know the Holy Scriptures in no other way than by hearing the word preached and by prayerful meditation. The Holy Spirit uses the word in our lives to bring us to a place of of competence as followers of Jesus Christ so so that we're equipped, so that we have the tools that we need to be used as instruments of God uh, to accomplish his eternal purposes in the network of relationships that he's brought us into in his divine providence. So the the Bible is not man-made. It's literally the word of God. And and then the, the Bible guides us with absolute truth in a culture that is a sea of relativism relativism very simply means that truth can be whatever you want it to be there's no absolute truth our culture right now is not in favor of absolute truth that's not very popular no right and wrong and uh, right is whatever happens to work for you in the moment but absolute truth has is, is kind of fallen out of favor. And relativism allows people to, to be their own gods. Uh, one of the most fundamental questions in life is, is God going to be God in your life, or are, are you going to be God in your life? And uh, relative, relativism allows you to be God in your own life. And if you're your own God, you can do whatever you want. You can live life whatever way you want. And you can call good whatever you want. Good can be, right can be, uh, whatever makes you feel good, uh, whatever makes you more money, whatever gets you what you want, whatever certain behavior works for you. That, that can be right for you. You see, it's all, it's all relative if you're a relativist. But God cuts through all that stuff with his absolute truth. Most of the people that I meet that call themselves atheists aren't honest atheists. They, uh, they don't have a well-defined, when I get to talking with them, they want to argue a little bit, they, they don't have a well-defined philosophy of atheism, like an honest-to-goodness atheist. Uh, what, they, what they really mean when you cut through some of the stuff is, I want to be my own God. In other words, I'm afraid that if I acknowledge there's a God, then he might have an agenda for my life that's different than my agenda. And, and so I don't want to acknowledge that. And, and so I'm going to be an, an atheist. And, th- and that works until you have a life-threatening illness or some other major setback in your life, and then and God brings you to your knees. But that relativism is why it's not politically correct anymore to label certain behaviors as sin. It's not really polite to talk about. You won't be, uh, you won't be a popular person at parties if you talk about sin. Uh, sins now are, are labeled as merely alternative lifestyles or uh, individual preferences. But Isaiah warns us about that he says woe to those who call evil good and good evil who who put darkness for light and and light for darkness in Isaiah 520 well God shapes our worldview by bringing absolute truth to bear on the decisions about life Psalm 119 160 says God the sum of your word is truth every one of your righteous rules endures forever you see, the thing about God's absolute truth is it is timeless. It, it was true yesterday, it's true today, and it will be true tomorrow and forever. God's uh, truth, God's principles and values don't shift like the values in our culture shift over time. That's why Paul, in uh, Romans twelve two 2, uh, encourages us to to use God's word as an anchor. He says, don't be conformed to this world. Another translation says, don't be pressed into the world's mold. I love that. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God's word renews our minds by exchanging God's thinking and God's values for those of the culture. If we're never in God's word, we will be shaped and molded by the culture around us. Our values will become those of the culture. And uh, that's not where God wants us to be as his children. We'll lose our distinctiveness. God's word explains uh, truth about how life is supposed to work. For example, some of the big questions in life. Who is God? That's one of the big questions. He tells us in Isaiah 40:28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God. I'm going to ask you four things about God that we learned from this passage. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. What do we find out about God here with regard to time? Yeah, I'm sorry? He's everlasting. He's eternal, right? He, he was always there. He will always be there. Time is an artifact of creation. Time will no longer exist in this sense. It will be irrelevant when we get to heaven and we live with God. So he, he's, uh, he's an eternal God, and and what is he made? He's the creator of everything, including us. He wrote the owner's manual, right? And how often does he get tired? Never. He does not faint or grow near grow, grow weary. And uh, what is his relative IQ compared to us? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. His understanding is unsearchable. We can't figure it out. Note to self, he's God, I'm not. And I have to keep reminding myself of that from time to time. Well, what do we... What do we uh, What do we learn from Dr. Francis Collins? Maybe you are familiar with his name, but Dr. Francis Collins is a world-renowned geneticist. He was the head of the the Human Genome Project that mapped the structure of DNA. He's obviously a very bright guy, but he described himself at one point in his life as an obnoxious atheist. He was already a physician, but he was uh, doing his doctoral work in quantum physics. Those people make me sick. No, I'm just kidding. He's one of these guys who's just scary smart. And, uh, and certainly he was wise in his own eyes at that point in his life. He described himself as an obnoxious atheist studying quantum physics who thought that science could explain everything. Science was his God. That was until he was confronted by one of his elderly heart patients, a, a, a woman who was in great pain, but told him how much her faith gave her comfort. And she says, by the way, doctor, what do you believe? <laughs> he said it was, it was a moment of truth. He, he said his face grew red and he was embarrassed and for once he was speechless. He didn't, he didn't know what to say because he didn't know what he believed. But that began his spiritual journey. Now let me step out of Francis Collins' story for just a second to point something out to you, that God uses you and I every day in that way to speak a word of truth into somebody else's life. Here was a woman uh, who was one of his patients. Uh, She didn't go in there with an intent to do any evangelism. She just spoke out of her heart that the comfort God was giving her as a result of of her faith. And God's Holy Spirit used that in his heart to open the door of his heart and begin his spiritual journey. Uh, That's what we need to be alert to, the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in all of our networks of relationships, you see. God can use a word like that to change the whole trajectory of another person's life for eternity. And we need to keep that in mind. Now back to our hero. Francis Collins' next stop on his journey was a small-town Methodist pastor. He says he, says he, asked, he, he arranged an appointment with this old pastor and he asked him a number of what he called blasphemous questions. And, and then the, the old pastor was patient with him, but, but he said, you know, I think you should read this book. And he gave him a copy of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Collins wasn't optimistic, but this is what he said. He said, within the first three pages, I realized that my arguments against faith were, against faith were those of a schoolboy. His next stop was one day when he was hiking on a beautiful fall day in the Cascade Mountains. He turned a corner and encountered a, a, a majestic frozen waterfall several hundred feet high. In the sunshine. He said he dropped to his knees in the wet grass and accepted this truth that God is God, that Christ is his Son, and I'm giving my life to that belief. Amen. Dr. Francis Collins went on to map the genetic structure of DNA as the head of the Human Genome Project. He was so amazed by the complexity and design of the code within our human cellular dna that he called it the language of god and if you remember the press conference that uh, president clinton and uh, doctor collins had together at the national institutes of health uh... bill clinton called it the language of god that is that is dna and collins wrote a book by that name he describes the the genetic information in a single human cell as consisting of three billion individual characters arranged in a sequence of four-character cryptographic codes. He, he said if a, a person went to read those codes out loud at, at the uh, at the speed of three characters per second, it would take a person 31 years to read through the, the code in, in a single cell. If you printed that code out on a... On the 8 and a half by 11 paper, paper with normal fonts and normal size margins, it would create a tower of paper as high as the Washington Monument. Wrap your mind around that for a minute. Now, does that some, sound like something that, that occurred from random mutations over a billion years or so? Not hardly. There's an intelligent designer at work. Uh, again, uh, note to self, he's God I'm not. That's what Collins concluded as well. One of the other big questions is about the origin of life. What's the origin of life and, and where does life begin? You know what Collins says about that? He, he says, um, you know, I can tell you about DNA. I can tell you about how cells replicate and what the, what the codes are and, and, and when we've got all the chromosomes that come together, uh, when a cell becomes uh, two cells and so on. But he said the question of when life begins. Here's a world-renowned scientist speaking. He says, the question of when life begins is not a scientific question. Science is not the tool that can answer that question. He says, that's a question for God. Only God can answer that question. Only religion, he says, can answer that question. I'm going to share with you a a story in just a moment. But uh, first of all, Uh, King David, inspired by God, says this about the origin of life and how you and I were formed. He says in Psalm 139, "'For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you. I am fearfully and wonderfully made.'" Sounds like he was thinking of uh, the genetic code in one of our cells, right? "'I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret.'" and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. And by the way, that's a poetic expression for the womb. The darkness of the womb is uh, is, uh, what he's referring to there when he talks about the depths of the earth. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Did you get that? God knew you before you were formed. He knew you when you were an unformed substance. And he had already determined, he had already ordained what the first day of your life would be and what the last day of your life would be and what every day in your life would be. And he had determined all that before you were born. Now, while you digest that, let me share with you this from Ephesians 1.4. He says, He chose us before the foundation of the world. God knew you not only he chose us. He knew us before the foundation of the world. God did not only know you before you were born. He knew you before he created the world. Wrap your mind around that. Isn't that just amazing? I want to share with you a story that's on on point uh, about the origin of life and uh, the way that God views life. But before I do that, I want to this is a story from the book uh, Heaven is for Real. How many of you have read that? Some of you know what I'm going to talk about then. But this is a, it's a New York Times bestseller. And uh, this, this uh, young man, uh, Colton Burpo, that the book is about, has been on a number of uh, interviews as well. You could probably Google his name and bring up uh, some of the interviews that he and his family have been involved in. But uh, his father, Todd Burpo, is a pastor in a small town in Nebraska. His wife is uh, Sonia Burpo. And their, their son is, is Colton Burpo. I think he's about 12 now. This happened when he was uh, three or four years old. And uh, when he was three or four, he, he made what, and, and I, what I wanted to share about this story is that, um, that none of these stories, uh, whether it's Francis Collins' account of his coming to faith, or whether it's Colton Burpo's story of what he experienced, uh, none of them carry the weight or the authority of Scripture. What Scripture tells us in uh, 1 John 4, for example, is that we need to test the spirits. We've been given the Holy Spirit so we can help determine the authenticity of the things that we hear and read about and the accounts that people share with us. And so we have to do that with this as well. Uh, Having considered that, I I believe that the the story in that book is is authentic. I, I believe he's reporting what he heard. Uh, but that is for you to decide on, on your own. I'm going to share with you one story out of many that he shares in that book. When he was three or four years old, he made what doctors called a, a miraculous recovery from, a, from an emergency appendectomy and complications that uh, left him in a coma for uh, a number of days, for a period of time. And, and over the months that followed his recovery, four-year-old Colton, as uh, little boys do, began dribbling out facts and details about experiences that he said he had in heaven during that period when he was hovering between life or death in that coma in the hospital. And he began, began to recount facts and details that he could not have known from a human perspective. His parents at first wanted to dismiss his accounts, but as he continued to reveal what he had seen, they became convinced that he was telling the truth and one of the many stories that he shared was this he said uh, one evening as his as his family was together Colton approached his mom and as little boys do they blurt things out and he said I have two sisters and Sonia said well no you don't you have one sister and and uh, her name is Cassie and she's your older sister he said no I, I have two sisters he said you you had a baby die in your tummy didn't you Todd Burpo writes, time stopped in the Burpo household right at that point. And, and uh, they focused their in, uh, attention on him and began questioning him. You see, Sonia had had a miscarriage after Colton was born while he was a baby. They had never told him about it, and there was no way that he could have known about it from a human perspective. And, and as they questioned him, he, he went on to describe... Uh, a little girl that he said he met in heaven who wouldn't stop hugging him. She said that she was his sister. They asked what she looked like. She said that she was his sister and that she died in, in her mommy's tummy. And, and when, they, when they asked, well, what did she look like? They, uh, he said, well, she looked like Cassie, except she was smaller and, and she had brown hair. When they asked her name, Colton said, she didn't have a name because you guys didn't name her. That was true. Todd and Sonia didn't even know the gender of the child she miscarried, so, so she didn't, uh, they had never given her a name. Then Colton piped up, but she's okay, Mommy. God adopted her. As if that wasn't enough, then he said something to his mom that they will never forget. She said she can't wait for you and daddy to get to heaven. I have a word for you. Moms and dads and sisters and brothers who've endured the same kind of pain. From what I read in scripture, there is someone you haven't met yet who can't wait for you to get to heaven. Now I'm going to ask the question that all of you are thinking. Is it possible that all the other babies who were forever reasoned unwanted here on earth, is it possible that they're being loved and cared for by God in heaven? All I know is what I read in Scripture about God's character. 1 John 4 says, God is love. Not just God talks about love, not just loves us, not just God so loved the world even. All that's true. But it says God is love. His essence is love. He is perfect love. He is the source of all love. So we know that about his character. And, and then we know too that Jesus, when he was on earth in uh, Matthew 19:14, he says, let the little children come to me. Forbid them not, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. One more thing. We know that God doesn't throw away what he's created. We know that God redeems what he's created. Is it possible that uh, all the little ones who were never allowed to know life here will know life with God in eternity? I think that is consistent with the character of our God. Question, big question number three. What's God's design for a family? What should marriage look like? You see, these are all things that the cult, uh, these are hot-button issues within the culture. But God's absolute truth speaks to all these things. What's God's design for the family? Well, Genesis 2 tells us how God designed the first marriage relationship. He orchestrated that. He said in, in uh, Genesis 2, Then the Lord God said it is not good that man should be alone. Well, sometimes it is. You know, when we're, when we're crabby, maybe. <laughs> it's not good that... I don't think that's what he meant. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. That's a key phrase. I'll make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed, it up, closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Are there any questions about God's design for marriage and family? God designed woman for man and man for woman. You notice he didn't allow for any other combinations here. If our culture thinks it has a better idea, it doesn't. It's that simple. Refer back to rule number one. He's God. We're not. Now about the marriage relationship. You know, our our culture right now winks at and even celebrates infidelity, unfaithfulness, and and immorality. But God's work speaks to that too. To contrast our culture and uh, God's absolute truth, one of the... uh, The books on the bestseller list right now you may have heard about. It's called Fifty Shades of Grey. And um, most uh, people that know anything about literature who have reviewed it said that uh, it's very poorly written. It it is not a substantive work of literature at all and uh, shouldn't be a bestseller. Uh, But it is just another flavor. Friends, it's just another flavor of pornography. And uh, Yet it's on our bestseller list, which, which, which says something about what our culture values. On the other hand, uh, God says in, uh, in Psalm 101, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. I will set no evil thing before my eyes. God knows that what we put in our minds, whether it's visual or what we read, uh, influences our character and it shapes our character. And, and so regardless of, of what our culture says, the absolute truth of God's word says, that's not for you. Christians shouldn't be reading that stuff. It, it runs counter to, to God's word. Uh, what about the marriage relationship? And, uh, and what our culture winks at and celebrates even on television and in the movies? Well, God says this in Hebrews thirteen four: Let marriage be held in honor among all, let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. He's not kidding about that. What do you think that looks like? Well, the pattern I've observed is this. When a guy is unfaithful to his wife, in, in many cases, the first thing you see is he'll lose his livelihood. And, and God will say, have I got your attention yet? And, and if not, he, re, he remains unrepentant, unrepentant in, in sin, then many times he'll lose his family. And God will look down and say, you knucklehead, have, you got my, have, have I got your attention yet? And, and if not, sometimes God will touch his health. And if he remains unrepentant, if, if he is a child of God, but remains in unrepentant public sin, God may take his life sooner or later. Because God is patient, but he will not forever tolerate someone bringing reproach on the name of Christ. And eventually, he'll, he'll eliminate the cause for that. Well, finally, the Bible causes us to prosper and produce fruit. He, uh, in Psalm 1, we're told about the Psalm 1 man or, or woman, and... Uh, it says, "Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But get this: his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers." Psalm one, one through three. So, so God's word is a source of life-giving vitality just like the tree by the stream. And, and what it allows us to do is, is to rise above adversity and to flourish and produce fruit even in difficult times. And that fruit is not only internal. It's not only the love, the joy, the peace, the character of Christ in our own lives, but it's also the eternal fruit that God, that God uses as, a, as instruments to produce in the lives of, of people around us that he, that he brings us in contact with. Well, how do we get the Word of God into our lives? How do we study the Bible in a a way that uh, allows God's Word to change us over time? Well, the good news is there is no advanced theological education required. Anybody can study God's Word. This uh, this particular scripture is not in your notes, but it's 1 John 2.27. It's one of my favorites when we talk about how God teaches us. 1 John 2.27 says, but the anointing that is the Holy Spirit that you have received from him abides in you and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, as the Holy Spirit teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as, his, at it, as it has taught you, abide in him. Jesus said that if you abide in me, my words abide in you. You'll ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. Um, So no, no advanced theological education required. The other thing that I, I, I think is uh, important to know is um, the tools that are available. And I've given you a copy of a page out of a study Bible here. Would you pull that out for a minute? It's Matthew 4. If you want to write on the, the upper corner, you can write ESV on it. That is English Standard Version if you want to. This is, a, this is one study Bible that happens to be an English Standard Version study Bible. I like this one because the uh, references are also current and and there are are all kinds of tools in this particular study Bible. You want to accelerate your life with God in in God's word? Get yourself a study Bible. These notes underneath the text explain just about every verse in the text. Some things that you may not be familiar with, they'll explain. The cross-references over on the side are are meant to illuminate those particular verses. So you see, for example, Jesus says in verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, Jesus quoted scripture in this passage, but he actually quoted it out of Deuteronomy. If you look just to your left, and folks, I mercifully made this, I mercifully copied this at 120%. So it's for 60-year-old eyes like mine. You find that number four over in the left column, and you'll see that Jesus cited that scripture from Deuteronomy 8.3 that was spoken by Moses to the nation of Israel. But the point is the same, that uh, every word that man shall not live by, word, by uh, bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In addition, a study Bible will have uh, maps and other references in it. It will have a concordance in the back that will allow you to do topical searches on faith or on grace or anything else. And the, uh, the NASB, which we have in the pews, the New American Standard Version, is a, is a fine version as well. Some of you use NIV, the New International Version. That that also is fine. The the NASB and the uh, ESV, the English Standard Version, are over on the the word-for-word translation side. That is, scholars value those because of the accuracy, the faithfulness to the Greek. Uh, The NIV on the other end of the spectrum is a thought-for-thought translation. So it's much more readable, but what you trade off for that is the accuracy when compared to the the individual Greek Greek word. But find a study Bible that works for you and and use that. Uh, One more thing that I'd suggest to you as a tool, this little resource right here, How to Study the Bible, is a great little primer on on how to look at the word of God and learn from it. It's a quick read, and uh, today and today only. It's available at the back of the auditorium after the service for a buck. If you have a buck, you can own one of these and you will like it. It it is a great tool for accelerating your progress in in the Word of God. If you don't have a buck, you could borrow one from one of these people up in the front row probably. (laughs) Okay, we're on the home stretch here. What I'd like to do is... um, I'd like to look at this passage quickly and then I'm going to ask you to work with me on three questions. Three questions that you can ask yourself about any passage uh, to have God speak truth into your life through it. Those three questions are, what does it say? That is the who, what, when, and where and how question. What does it mean? What was the original intent at the time uh, of the author? And then what does it mean to me? How do I apply it to my life? What can I learn from it? What's God speaking to me through this particular passage of scripture? So we're going to look at the passage I've given you on this page. And that is uh, uh, Mark 4, 1 through 11. Those 11 verses about Jesus' temptation. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they'll bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me then Jesus said to him be gone Satan for it is written you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve then the devil left him and behold angels came and were ministering to him okay first question I start out with kind of a softball first question is uh, what does it say what did uh, what was the who was the writer first of all You can get this, Matthew. There you go. It was Matthew. Matthew was the writer. And and who are the characters in in this account? Jesus. Satan and Jesus. Easy enough, right? What did uh, What did this period of testing follow? Forty days of fasting. And fasting was used to intensify um, one's focus and one's prayer life in in uh, in preparation for a season of ministry. So God was using this time of testing in Jesus life to prepare him for ministry what were the temptations aimed at Uh, first of all his hunger right turn the stones into bread what about the second one jump off the temple and uh, the angels will bury you up what would have happened as a result of that you think he would have been popular in the Jewish community well yeah he he would have been a local celebrity right Uh, and what about the last one? What was the appeal there in that temptation? Power. Yeah, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Uh, was Satan absolutely truthful in, in each of the offers that he made to Jesus? No. And that. Pardon me. He didn't have the right, did he? Yeah, Satan's the ruler of this world, but only, only to a limit. Uh, he, he's not sovereign like like God is. Okay. What it, What does it mean? Second question, what what does this passage mean? What if Jesus had given in to one of those three temptations? What would have been the the outcome? He he couldn't have been our Savior, exactly. It would have derailed God's redemptive plan because God needed Jesus to suffer and to die so that we could be redeemed, right? And so if Satan, if he'd bought into any of these schemes of Satan's, it, it would have derailed that plan. Uh, what's, the, what's the meaning in terms of the, uh, this time of temptation in Jesus' life? What was the purpose of that? How would that have been understood? Why did God, uh, does, God uh, does God allow people to go through temptation? Yeah, James says, God tempts no man, neither can he be tempted, right? But he allows us to go through periods of temptation doesn't he? So this was a period of testing in Jesus' life to prepare him for ministry. It was the first in a series of spiritual battles that Jesus had to win on, on the road to redemption. And, and he knew that. He knew what God's purposes were. Okay, let's jump to uh, what does it mean to me? What truths can you pull out of this passage that you can apply to your life uh, that, uh, that God can speak truth into your life and, and change you incrementally? What what can we learn from this passage? I'm, I'm sorry? Okay, yeah, use God's word to fight temptation. Jesus did that in every case, right? What's the prerequisite for that? Well, you've got to know something about God's word. I mean, you've got to spend a little time in God's word. I don't mean you have to memorize vast chunks of it. The Holy Spirit, but if you're in God's word from day to day, the Holy Spirit will bring that passage to mind that you need at that particular moment. Uh, Also, in regard to to battling temptation, God tells us a couple things. First of all, he says that if we resist Satan, he'll flee from us. James 4, 7 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We can overcome Satan. Jesus says, Greater is he that is in you, that is the Holy Spirit. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that is Satan. So uh, we've got the big dog in our corner. In, in terms of beating satan we can overcome satan and and the second thing that god tells us is in first uh, corinthians ten thirteen. no temptation has overtaken you but that is that has overtaken you that is not common to man god is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it so what do we know about temptation that god allows to come into our lives what do we know about it on the front end? Yeah, God is greater and, and that we can escape it, right? That, that God has provided a way out that we can overcome that temptation in the, in the power of, of Jesus Christ. Not, not in our own power, but in the power of Jesus Christ. And, and the third thing, the thing that jumped out at me was the statement that Jesus made about man not living by bread alone. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible, folks, is our source of life. Once you, uh, when, when you and I are born, we are spiritually dead. We have no life with God because we're born into sin. Uh, but when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, suddenly our, our, our new life is in Jesus Christ. And Jesus empowers our life. And, and so we see in 2 Corinthians five seventeen that if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. You see, we have, we have new life. Paul says in, in Galatians 2.20, um, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the faith of the Son of God, I, I, the, the life which I now live, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So see, Christ empowers our life, but the power comes through the word of God. And God uses... His word in our lives every day to to empower us and, and to change us, transform us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's why the word is so important in our lives. And some of us are suffering from spiritual malnutrition. If uh, if God's word is the source of our life and, and Jesus is living out his power through our life and we are not taking in the word of God from day to day, uh, then we're going to be starving ourselves. We're going to be uh, suffering from spiritual malnutrition. So we need to focus on the word of God and uh, let, out, let Jesus live his life out through us in, in power. God equips us through that. One final example, setting your sights on God. In a, in a previous career, in a previous lifetime, I was a state policeman, and one of my jobs in the state police was as a firearms instructor. I taught young troopers to shoot and uh, as a firearms instructor, I learned to read targets. And so you could see by the pattern of shots on a target what the person was doing wrong in, in terms of their, their shooting, their approach to shooting. And, uh, and most often with new shooters, what we would see is that, is that there, the, the pattern of shots on the target would be broad. It would be all over the map. And they would be spread out all, all over. And, and that's because the person, when they start to shoot, it, it's almost... Uh, um, uh, a natural reaction is to try to hold the weapon out in such a way and focus on the target way out there, hold the weapon out in such a way you, you think you got it just under there and you, and you jerk the trigger and the shot goes wide. And it's, it's because of an improper focus, you see. They're focused on the outcome. They're trying to artificially produce a, an outcome way down there, but they're not paying attention to what's happening here. And And what I had to do as a coach was come alongside that person and I'd literally whisper in their ear. I'd stand alongside them as they were shooting and I'd say, focus on your sights. You see, the important thing was the alignment of those sights. Getting, getting the sights lined up and that the focus of their eye was on those sights right here at the end of their arm and, and not out there. You needed the focus of their sights to be, uh, the focus of their eyes to be right here on the sights. So that was sharp and in focus and so the target was blurry in the background and, and out of focus and, and as they began to learn how to focus and as I talked to them in their ear while they were shooting and as they learned how to focus you would watch that pattern come in and come in and come in until and, and there was a nice group in the center of the target well you know it's the same thing in our Christian life sometimes we try to produce we try to produce results for God we say we're gonna do things for God and, and so we worry about those outcomes way down the road What God is saying to us is, I I called you human beings, not human doings. You need to focus on being in relationship with me first. You you need to align your heart with my heart by spending time in my word. Learn learn about me. Learn to know God and, and learn how I work in your life. And I will produce the outcomes in your life. The word produces fruit, the parable of the sower says. We don't have to work to produce fruit. The word will produce fruit in our lives if we incorporate it in our lives. So, so our focus should be right here on God, on his word, aligning our hearts with his heart through time and his word, and God will worry about everything else. He will produce the outcomes that he has purposed in our lives as we spend time with him getting to know him and his word. That's the most important thing for this life and the next. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for all that you've done. Lord, we just can't even wrap our minds around how great a God you are. And um, and I'm mystified, frankly, by why you love us so much. I suppose you'll explain that to us someday. But Lord, I I just pray that uh, you would impress these truths on our hearts, that you'll make us people of your word and people who desire more than anything else to know you and, and to live for you. And we ask these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for the time, folks. Enjoy the day.